Okay. Number first thing I want to do is I'm going to take off my hat. Um, number two, uh, moms, ladies, do something really fun. I'm going to pray for you. Um, honestly, what does Mother's Day turn out to be? All the stuff that guys should be doing throughout the whole year concentrated into one single day. Now, I get it. Some of us guys, we, we do more than that. But let's face it. Uh, how many of you guys were up doing something late last night or early this morning that you could have been doing earlier in the week? I mean, that's just the stuff that we men tend to do. And it's no different as a pastor and as a church, we should be praying for our moms regularly. And if you are, that's awesome. But today we're gonna say a special blessing. We're gonna pray a special prayer for all the moms here because moms are incredible. Moms do so much behind the scenes. I know on a Sunday morning, generally I get up, get ready for church, leave my wife at home while she gets herself and the two kids and the household in order. I've already left. So she's doing all that stuff so that I can go do my thing. And, and many of you husbands, you go out, you do your thing because you've got a wife at home who takes care of you in that way. Um, I also sensitive to the fact that some of you ladies aren't moms in the traditional sense, but we still consider you uh, filled with wisdom, good, godly, spiritual influences on our life. And we are thankful that God has blessed us with your presence. And so I want to pray for you this morning. So men, I would ask that you would join me in this prayer, specifically for the ladies and the moms of the church today. Lord Jesus, we praise you. And we thank you for moms. We're thankful that when you came to this earth to, to live as a human, to, to walk sinless and to pay for the sins of your people, you came through a mom that she gave birth to you and she nursed you and she reared you and she loved you and gave us a great template for what it means to be a godly mother. I thank you, Lord, that you have given us such great blessings. And for some of us, our moms are not here. For some of us, we were never moms. For some of us, we had great examples of what a mom should be. And Lord, we just wanna pray for everybody who falls into these categories, Lord. We pray for the moms of this church. May you bless them abundantly. May this next year be the best year of their lives. May you fill it with, with triumphs and strength and, and fill it with, with such blessing that they can indeed quote back to you that their cup runneth over because you have done so much for them. And Lord, as the men of this church, Lord, help us to step up to serve the women of our church. To, to continue to lead our families and to lead this church, not, not by lording over them, not by being more important than them, but by being servants as you were servants to your people and to us. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I, I just realized I didn't turn off my phone this morning, so I'm going to encourage you to do the same before my phone goes off. Now, you're going to notice a common theme as we go through these, uh, as we go through these different parts of First, Second, and Third John. You're going to find that John is going after continuously false teachers and false teaching. Um, so much so that I know for myself, as I as I study and as I kind of stand back a little bit, I think, man, I feel like I, I'm beating a dead horse, and certainly I don't want to do that. But I came to the realization, the conclusion that if John found it important enough to continue to keep preaching and teaching on these things, and for thousands of years these wor words have stood, this truth has been truth, regardless of time or age or culture, then we should be busy studying these things, hearing these things as well. Um, 
Today we're going to talk about anointing. And anointing is one of those words in the church that we use, but I don't know that we really understand what it means. Kind of like the word glory. We use the word glory a lot, but if I was to ask each one of you, what does that mean? What does the word glory mean? I'd probably get as many different answers as there are people here at the chapel. I asked my son today, we were praying and, 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 and before we came in and I, I said something to the effect of, you know, may you receive all of the glory. And as I said that, I thought, I wonder if Ethan even knows what I'm talking about. We say that at the end of every prayer. Does he know what that means, that we want Jesus to get all of the glory? And so I asked him, and, and he kind of gave me an answer, and it was good. And I said, you know what? And this is one of those things you can tweet. You can do that. I said, God is like soup, or glory is like soup. God is like soup. I said, we, have you ever had a really good bowl of soup? And he said, yeah, you know, tomato soup, things like that. I said, yeah. You ever turn to the, the chef or the cook and say, wow, it must have been cooked in a really good pot. No, no, we just concentrate on how good the soup is. I said, yeah. I'm like, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We don't want, we're the pots. We're the pans. We're never gonna, we don't want to receive the glory. We want everybody to come and see that Jesus is the reason that life is worth living. We want them to see that the life in us is not just that we're exuberant or full of joy, but that Christ has given us that joy and that exuberance because he has given us his life. And so we want to be like the pots and the pans and we want Jesus to be the soup, the really good soup. That being said, uh, glory tends to be one of those words. We say it, we don't know what it means. That's basically what it means, that Jesus would receive all of the praise. He would be recognized as supreme and that we would kind of shrink away. Like John the Baptist said, that, that he must de- I must decrease that he might increase. And so anointing is another one of those words that we use it and, and we may not be using it in the right way. And that's, you know, some might say, well, this is a matter of semantics. We're just using, we're using a word in a, in a different way, but we're meaning the same thing. But often semantics get in the way of good gospel teaching and good biblical doctrine. That's so what today we're going to talk about that. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. And as you turn there, uh, John's church had an enemy Uh, in teaching known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism, if you've been keeping up with this, very simple teaching. God is spirit. Bible teaches that. Flesh is sinful. Bible teaches that. But as a result, man can do whatever they want with their flesh. Bible does not teach that. That Jesus was just spirit. Bible doesn't teach that. And when he died on the cross, he didn't really die on the cross. Again, Bible doesn't teach that as well. And they when confronted with this teaching or, or the, the, the doctrine of this teaching, they would simply give the answer of, well, this is secret knowledge that is only available to a select few. And if you were enlightened like me or us, then you would know these things, but you don't. So you keep trying, you keep climbing that ladder of enlightenment and maybe, just maybe you'll get to where I'm at. Big, huge red flag when spiritual leaders or any leaders in general start to say things like that, like, well, it's secret knowledge. Well, it's only for a select few. Well, if you were only good enough, smart enough, spiritual enough, then maybe you would know too, but you don't, so you're less than us. And it breeds spiritual elitism and classism and does not grow the body of Christ. It fractures the body of Christ. And so this is what John is up against. And we aren't necessarily up against Gnosticism in that way. What we're up against is false gospels coming to 
not even replace the gospel, but try to mingle in with the gospel. Try to, try to mix in to look like the gospel and say, well, you know, you need to, to, to accept Jesus. You need to confess him with your mouth and believe in your heart and, you know, be circumcised. That's what the Judaizers would say in the, in the, in the uh, letter to the Galatian church that Paul wrote. You, you know, you need to confess Jesus with your mouth and believe in your heart he's the son of God and celebrate all of the, the festivals that the Jews, fe- uh, that the Jews celebrated. You, need, you know, you need to, to accept Christ, but then also not eat meat. You know, you need to abstain and just eat vegetables or, and just certain vegetables. And you need to follow all these certain rules so that, that your salvation is legit. And so the problem is that you take the foundation and you start building on it false doctrine and eventually you have legalistic people who are beating their head against a wall for a God they can never satisfy because the God is not the God of the Bible but the God of their own creation. And so today we fight things like the poverty gospel that you must be poor and give away everything that you have for God to be pleased with you or the prosperity gospel that God loves you and so since he loves you every Christian should be rich or a hyper faith that says that that you should never be sick or you should you know should always be healthy nothing bad should ever happen to you and we we fight all these different variances of the gospel none of them being fully the gospel themselves. And here's what John has to say to the church about that. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you, ha- that you receive from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Let's pray. Lord, it is your word that is good. It is your word that we need. I do not wish to take from it or add to it. I pray, Lord, that today you would be glorified. Indeed, that you would be the soup, that we as your people would be the pots and the kettles and the pans, and we would receive none of the glory, that you would receive all of it. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. You, church, are targeted. You have a target on you. As you have professed your faith in Jesus Christ, John says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Every day, all of the time, somebody somewhere is trying to deceive you. And most likely they won't come to you saying things like, hey, I want to deceive you. They won't say, hey, guess what? I'm going to teach something completely counter to what you believe. They're going to come in and they're going to try to trick you. They're going to sound Christiany. They're going to sound right and look the part and walk in the right way and they're going to be loving and we're going to trust them to some degree. But at some point, there are people who are trying to deceive you. They come in three different and very distinct flavors. Number one is the world. That's, the out, that's outside of the church. Frankly, they're, they're the one I'm probably most, or I should say least worried about. Because they do come in obvious ways counter to what we believe. Well, we don't believe that Jesus is the son of God. Okay, well, the Bible says that he is. And so we're gonna put our weight behind that. We're not going, you see that it's a black and white issue. We believe that this or that sin is permissible. Well, we believe that the Bible speaks against it. And so there's not a lot of deception there. What you find there generally is compromise the threat of compromising. Now, generally speaking, compromise is a good thing. I want pizza, wife wants burgers, I compromise and we get burgers. That's a good thing. 
that's a husband joke. Hus- husbands, you can laugh nervously and then, and then talk about it later when the wives aren't around. But compromise, cheeseburger pizza, that would be a true compromise for men. For men. It's Mother's Day. I'm not gonna make more women jokes. But my point is this. Compromise is generally a good thing. You wanna do this, they wanna do this. You find something in the middle where everybody's satisfied. Somebody gives up a little bit, somebody gives up a little bit, and that's okay. But this type of compromise is not compromise. This is, I will forego what I believe is foundational based on the word of God to make sure I don't offend you, so that I make sure I don't upset you, to make sure that I'm more tolerable. Now, I'm all for being tolerable. The Bible tells us to live at peace as much as we can with as many people as we can but not at the expense of bending or breaking the truth of the word. At some point, we will have to make a stand and say, no, this is what we believe. And you can disagree with us. We don't lord over you. We don't rule over you. It's your choice to make, but we aren't going to compromise the truth because ultimately Jesus is the one who leads us, guides us, and is Lord over us. And so the world is not a threat to deceive us per se, It is more of a threat when it comes to compromise. False teachers are the ones that are our biggest threat when it comes to deception because they're going to come in to the church. They're going to try to be part of the church. And as John said last week, they'll eventually leave from the church. They'll leave not because they were a part of us and disagreed. They'll leave because they were never really a part of us. And as I said last week, sometimes people come to the chapel. They come for a couple of Sundays. It's not for them for whatever reason. And it's not a good thing or a bad thing. They just decide, you know what? This is just not the ministry for me. And we say, you know what? That's awesome. I hope you find a church that you can serve in, one that that gives you a sense of duty, one that gives you a sense of purpose. And I hope you find a good, sound, solid, Bible-teaching, gospel-believing, Jesus-exalting church. That's okay. That is not what we call division. We call that unity without uniformity. We don't have to be the same in order to be united. There are churches all across Canastota and Oneida and Wamsville and everywhere else that believe the same things we do and we consider them our brothers and sisters in Christ and united with them. They're not our enemies simply because they don't come to this church. But there are churches and ministries that teach things that are counter to the word of God. They contradict what the word says. Thank you, sweetheart. They contradict what the word says. And there we do have to say, you know, there is a a distinct line that you have crossed. And so we have to stay on this side of the biblical line. We cannot operate over there because in that place is not truth or untruth. And in that place is danger, meaning you're telling people and teaching people to rely on things that aren't there. It's like you're telling them, it's like a trust fall thing. We're telling them, go ahead and fall. You can trust me. But when they fall, nothing's gonna catch them because those doctrines and those principles are non-existent. And so Paul tells the Galatian church, this false teaching is like a a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough. Have you ever made bread? It's not like 90% yeast. It's like 1% yeast, if that's even the right fraction. I'm not a skilled baker, but you put barely anything in there, right? Little bit of yeast in there and not, it doesn't just go poof instantly, right? 
You put some yeast in there and then you let it, you know, kind of set and proof and it slowly expands. That chemical reaction of the yeast in the, in the other ingredients causes air to cause it to rise and get bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, you've got a loaf. And in a loaf of bread, that's a good thing. But when sin is the, the metaphor for the leaven or vice versa, leaven's the metaphor for sin, Paul's saying, look, false teaching works like yeast. It goes in a little bit, but it slowly starts to grow. Pastor Tony, you're just, you're leading a witch hunt. No, I'm looking for the leaven. Where is the leaven in our life that's puffing us up, that's causing us to believe in things that aren't true? We must be busy learning what the word of God says, not what man says about the word of God, especially when it's contradictory to the word of God. Well, that's, you know, you just haven't gotten to where I'm at. Red flag. Because I find that there are, there are, children in the Bible who knew to run to Jesus to love him and appreciate him and celebrate him without any kind of special secret knowledge. They just saw Jesus. He must have looked fun because I noticed that kids don't go to grumpy people. Kids go to the ones that are fun and, you know, will wrestle with them and things like that. And so they saw that and they weren't afraid to go to him. It was the adults who were like, whoa, stay away from Jesus. He's too busy. No, you don't need secret knowledge. And that's why John's coming against this Gnosticism because it taught you must have secret knowledge. And there was people who walked around in the church who thought, oh, I'm just second rate. I'm, I'm not as good as those people. I'll never, I, if I could only be where they're at, then maybe I would be loved by Christ. And, and if you've ever felt second rate when it comes to love, you understand how empty of a feeling that is, that you could never, that you could never meet their criteria for love I hope, I hope you find out that that criteria that maybe you're trying to hit is not criteria God has laid out for you. It's something that maybe man has done and it's not true. And, th- and that bondage can be thrown off because Jesus, like those children, just wants you to run to him and love him and wrap your arms around him. He's waiting for you to love you because of what he has done, not because of what you have done. Our last enemy is Satan. Satan is real. Hell is hot. Nothing's changed there. Um, Every so often, you'll see this generationally, every so often generations get too smart for themselves and decide Satan's not real and hell's not real and everything is love. And then, and then it just all collapses on itself because, because it just, it's, a, it's, a, it's a faulty foundation because at some point somebody hurts you and you're called to love them, but you can't love them because they hurt you. And so you got this faulty foundation and it crumbles and then people go the opposite direction and then you got fire, brimstone and all that. And, and it's, it's like, come on. What does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about Satan? Here's what it says. Satan hates you. And some of you are really not cool with that. You're really not keen to the idea that Satan doesn't like you. Not because you want him to like you. That's not what I mean. You just hate and you can't understand or fathom why he would come after you and attack you. I'm here to tell you today, he hates you. Oh, well, we're going to have to live with that. This is going to be a lifelong journey of him not liking us. I don't know why Satan's attacking you. Oh, really? Because he doesn't like you. That's why. You have Jesus in you, and so he hates that. You're a child of God, which we'll talk about next week, and he hates you because of that. And so he wants to make your life miserable because of that. Moms, he wants to make you miserable. Dads, he wants to make you miserable. He wants to make you turn to God's face and betray him and to turn away from him, just like he wanted to get Job to do the same to God. 
First Peter five and eight says, be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter says, look, Satan doesn't like you. He wants to destroy you. And it's not just you. It's the whole church worldwide, not just South Bay Chapel, not just Canastota, but the big C church, all encompassing of the whole entire world. He does not like us. Oh, well, Satan's attacking me. Well, that's all he knows to do. Why are you surprised? Why are you shocked? It hurts. That I get. Because it will hurt. He's not trying to help you. He's trying to get you to compromise your faith with the world. He's trying to deceive you into believing false doctrine or just betray the God who loves you very, very, very much. But let's get comfortable with the fact that he just doesn't like us. Let's get over that hump. Let's decide, okay, he doesn't like me. He's indeed the enemy of my soul. And I'm just going to have to operate within that sort of parameter for the rest of my life. You know, I used to be as a kid, and this is a really poor metaphor. But as a kid, I was afraid of bees. I just hated them. When I was five years old, I was out, you know, it was kindergarten, five years old. I was just a wee lad. <laughs> and, and, and I was outside, we were, we were having PE, and a bee went up my nose. No, you guys didn't hear that. A bee went up my nose. A, a bee went, have you ever heard a bee buzz by your ear? Imagine it being your nose. It went up into my nose. And instinctively, I like snorted in reverse and was like, Psh, and shot it out. And I'm sure that bee did not plan on going up my nose that day, but that's where he found himself. And from that moment on began my fear of bees. I just, I just hated bees. I remember uh, when I was like 12, we, my parents did this like crop sharing thing. We went out to this field and we were plowing this field and digging these, holes and I, I, we grew, I grew up in the city. I don't know what I was doing, but there was these wasps everywhere. I was like, oh my gosh, these are like, these are like bees on drugs. Like wasps are horrible. Do they even make honey? Like I, I don't want any, they're like, I got like long legs and they're zzz, and they're just mean and, and they just want to hurt you. And I was like, and my parents were like, just, just get to work. You know, got money to make. Like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm out here in tennis shoes trying to farm. My parents are great, by the way. Just don't judge them based on this story. They are really cool. Um, and I remember watching this guy. He was a friend of the family. He was working. He had a Walkman on. He had this, he had this hoe. And he was just like, boom, boom, boom. He was putting the holes in for the plants. Wasp buzzing all around him. I was just marveled at him. I was like, he just, he just doesn't even care. And as I've grown up, I've realized now that bees, you know, I, that fear, I mean, I don't want one, any, you know, too close to me. And, and, and honeybees, I'm okay with. I get it. They make honey and we need to save them. But like carpenter bees, you ever seen carpenter bees? They're like the, the manatees of the flying world. They're just these huge bees. And we have some they hang out back by our porch and we go outside and I watch my son and daughter do the same thing. Look, oh, bees. And I'm like, you just got to pretend like they're not there, man. You got to realize they're there. They've got their place. They might sting you, but most likely aren't going to. Just go out there and do what we got to do, play around. And sure enough, you'll see they'll, they'll buzz around. They'll come around sometimes and they go back. And I've just had to get comfortable with the fact that bees are a thing. And they have their danger that comes with them, but I don't have to be afraid of them. 
And maybe you've got a fear of something much more logical than bees. Maybe you've got a fear of losing somebody or being unhealthy or not having any money or being alone for the rest of your life. Maybe you've got a more legitimate fear than being afraid of bees. But I want to tell you this. I want you to not be afraid of Satan. Satan is real. Satan is a threat. But Satan has been defeated by Jesus. Today, we don't worry about him in the sense that we are afraid he's around every corner, that he's gonna, we're going to get touched by somebody and then we're going to have the Satan. You don't have to worry about that. We have to be cognizant. He's going around looking for someone to devour. But understand this, Jesus has for us the protection that we need based on what he has done. What he has done to save us. So he tells us not to go toe-to-toe with Satan, he doesn't tell us to get in the boxing ring with Satan. Go, mm, says, resist him. How firm in your faith. Be sober-minded, be watchful. When you're feeling lazy, when you're feeling slothful, be careful. This is where Satan looks to devour you. And know this, that when you are suffering, you're not the only one. Peter says, look, the whole, the whole world, the whole church is going through this same suffering. For us, it might be, you know, the co-workers who think it's funny that we worship Jesus. For people in Iraq, it's being beheaded by ISIS. I say, I say right now, we, all of a sudden I'm Foghorn Leghorn. I say that um, we got the better end of the stick on that right now. And so we should be, be busy about the Lord's work, our Father's work, while, you know, our heads aren't being threatened to be beheaded. And so that brings me back to this anointing What does that mean when we say that? Here's what anointing does not mean. Anointing does not mean talent. You ever somebody say that? You hear somebody play guitar beautifully or sing beautifully? Oh, they're so anointed. Maybe they are, maybe they're not. I know plenty of singers throughout time who have been stone cold atheists, but you would never say they were anointed. You know, think about somebody like, oh, I don't know, Celine Dion. I don't know about her religious affiliation, so this is not a judgment of her. If you're a big fan and you just gasp, I'm sorry, I'm not picking on her. I know nothing about the woman except that her heart will indeed go on. There it is, Titanic, right? Incredible voice, right? I mean, that woman can sing at at decibels that only dolphins can hear. She has an incredible voice and, and control over her voice, but if she is an atheist, that doesn't mean that she's necessarily anointed to do that. And then we always use it for music, right? We never have a plumber come in and do a really good job on our toilet and say, oh, he's such an anointed plumber. Oh, you should have seen my toilet. It flushes in the most perfect way because of my anointed plumber. We never say that. So anointing does not necessarily mean talent. It also doesn't mean charming. Most con men are very, very charming. That doesn't mean they're anointed. Realtors and car salesmen, they can be very charming. Why? Because they're saying everything you want to hear. I sold real estate for a while and I was horrible at it. You know why? Because I kept saying stuff the people did not want to hear. Oh, look, that looks like mold under that sink. Run, flee, don't buy this house. Okay. Other salesmen, oh, we'll get that settled in, the, in, in closing. Just key for just just wait till I get my commission check and I can blow town. And then you're left holding the bag with the moldy sink. Charming does not mean anointed. 
people who are slick tongued and can really speak well. You know, it's half the reason why I come out here and fumble with my words, not on purpose, but it's God who's glorified when he can take somebody who can't speak good and take them and use them to convey the gospel of Jesus. It's why God was glorified when Moses went before Pharaoh because Moses stuttered and had no confidence in his speech. Paul put it like this in 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, 5. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power and of power so that your faith might rest, uh, excuse me, your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Again, so that your, your, the Lord's glory may not rest in the pot, but rather in the soup. That you would give praise to him rather than the instrument or the tool being used by him. You know, I love my dentist. I don't know if you guys got a good dentist. I got a good dentist. I don't walk away going, man, that guy's got a great drill. Man, that needle used for Novocaine was amazing. No, I go, man, he's a, he's a good dentist. He talks to me. He doesn't expect me to respond while I got the cotton in my mouth. He just talks. You want to listen to some headphones? You want to change the TV channel? It's on the view. Please, God, yes. Either that or give me a root canal because I'd rather do one over the other. Yeah, I'm not a fan. It's not a political thing either. I just, never mind. Um, <laughs> but Paul says, look, I didn't come to you with big eloquent words and flowing robes and all prestigious and all look at me and rolling my R's and sounding all King James English. I came to you in fear and weakness and in trembling. So you walked away going, man, God took him and brought us that message. It's like, it's like gold in a clay pot. It's like something really good and something that's not so good. And the anointing that we're talking about is not talent. It's not charming. It's not speaking ability. The word anointing here literally means to smear, to smudge. I know, very anticlimactic. It harkens back to the, the priest being anointed with oil. I read, and I know how true this is, it comes from shepherds who would anoint their sheep with oil. Now I'm really taking the luster off that word, right? Well, they would do that because out in the wilderness, sheep would get infested with ticks and lice and that sort of thing. And if they got towards the head, well, that was usually the end of the sheep. And so they would put oil on the sheep's head so that the wool and the hair would get slick so that if the ticks and things were going to be anywhere, it wouldn't be on the head. And that way the shepherd himself could find them and you know, help groom them and that sort of thing. And so it became symbolic. It became a metaphor for protection and setting aside and holiness. The high priest would be anointed because not everybody could go in to the Holy of Holies. Not everybody was going to do the priestly duties. And so there would be somebody set aside to do that. And then we have Jesus, the anointed one. He's the one who has been anointed, smudged with the, the, the call, the duty, the, the, the office to come and to be our Messiah, our anointed one, our, our deliverer, our Lord and our King. And the Bible tells us that as a direct promise from Christ, we will be anointed by the Holy Spirit. And when will that happen? That comes the day you are born again because that day you are born of the Spirit. That Holy Spirit that resides in the Trinity, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, now resides in you. Now has 
well, it has the trembling fear power uh, to install, instill rather, in Satan. See, Satan's not scared of you, but man, he's scared of God. And when you have the Holy Spirit in you, you have God in you. When I spoke of our enemies, we generally respond in one of two ways. It's called fight or flight. You probably heard that term. Fight or flight. You're going to want to respond and fight. You're going to... you know, I'm going to fight this. What, what is this? I'm going to come against it. I'm going to just, I'm going to start throwing blows. I'm not going to take this sitting. I'm going to get up there. I'm going to fight or flight. You're going to want to run. Oh my gosh, the enemy. Oh my, what am I going to do? These are natural. Fighting is our own strength. Flight generally is fear. The Bible tells us to fear one person, one person alone, and that's the Lord. So that's the beginning of understanding. It's reverence, it's understanding that, you know, it's not just a children's song, but he indeed holds the whole world in his hand. He holds you in his hand. And that's a good thing, but we shouldn't get too haughty about who we think we are. The Bible tells us we have no reason to fear. And I use that lightly. Because there is good fear. Like, if you go out to Route 31 right now, you should be afraid you might get hit. Because it could happen. There are cars driving fast. And they might not be looking at you. You know, you go and, you know, you swallow a handful of broken glass. I'd be afraid. Why? Well, because that's probably going to kill you. That's just, maybe you shouldn't be afraid of things you know that are going to hurt you. I don't know. But my point is there are things that, that we can be fearful of that are healthy for us. Things that we know are foolish. You say, okay, I'm just going to abstain from that thing. But I'm talking about the fear that generally controls us. That's, often illogical and irrational. First Timothy 1 and 6 says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. The new you has not been given the ability to fear in the sense that Satan rears his head, the world rears his head, compromise rears its head, deceitfulness rears its head, and you've got a cower. You ever see those articles? They're always around Easter time, something about Jesus and, you know, his grave and how they found his bones or, you know, Mary Magdalene or this or that, and they're going to unearth the truth about Jesus. Like, oh my God. Finally, oh my, I can't believe they did that. I can't believe they're not just going for ratings. Oh my gosh. You ever get scared? Ever, oh my gosh. Is that a little fear? It, man has been trying to do that for a really long time. And for, if you look at the chronology of the Bible, at least 7,000 years, they've been unsuccessful. And so I keep resting in the truth of the word rather than the sensationalism of a television program or a blog written by some guy in his underwear in his mother's basement. I'm not really worried about that too much. Paul says, look, you haven't been given a spirit of fear. You've been given a spirit of sound mind and of power, and most importantly, of love. Fight, you want to be strong in your own strength. Flight, it's fearful. It's neither one of those. Ephesians 6 and 14 says, Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Peter tells us, John reiterates it, Paul says it as well, stand firm in your faith. This past Wednesday, and I would encourage you, go on Facebook, listen to past Wednesday's Bible study um, because we talked about this at great length. I won't spend too much time 
on it here, but we talk about the armor of God, right? And, you know, some of us have posters and Bible book covers and we can quote the scripture, you know, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, sword of the spirit, all that. Problem is, we don't practice in the armor of God. So when it comes time to do real battle, we don't know what to do. The Bible says the weapon we've been given to fight is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. But many of us, we don't know the weight and what it feels like to wield this sword. So when it comes time for it to be really important, we don't know what to do. We're like an untrained warrior fumbling around with our weaponry because we've never practiced with it. David, when he had to fight Goliath, Saul put his, his armor on David and David's like, I can't fight in this. And he said, why? He said, because I'm not used to this. I've never fought in this before. I've got to go out in what I am familiar with, my sling, my rocks, my little pouch. And many times we don't know how to fight. We don't know how to resist or stand firm in our faith because we've never ever put on the armor of God because it didn't need to be put on in our heads during practice time. During the time where, where everything's slow, we try to scramble and put it on when it's time to fight and we've already lost. We try to be faithful when the arrows are coming. No, we've got to have the shield of faith up all the time. And the King James says to have our feet shod with the gospel of peace. And Paul's using this, you know, he's referring back to the Roman soldiers. They'd have these, these, you know, they were sandals, which I can't imagine fighting in sandals, but they had these large spikes, kind of like cleats in the bottom of their feet. So they could stand firm when they had to resist. So they wouldn't be easily moved. And, and, and Paul uses that as a metaphor, you know, stand firm in your faith. Something's gonna come along. Don't wait till it comes along to stand firm. Always stand firm. Always have the shield of faith. Always have the helmet of salvation or the breastplate of righteousness or the belt of truth or the sword of the spirit. Always have them. I love football and, and right now is, is like death for football. There's nothing, it, it, the only thing you hear about in football right now is when another football player gets arrested. That's all you hear right now. But soon they're gonna start training camps and mini camps and they're gonna go out there and you're gonna see them in their helmets and in their shoulder pads and not with their cleats on. Why? They're not playing a real game because they're getting ready for when they do. And so for you, church, if you're like, well, I keep failing, falling, well, maybe because you aren't familiar with the weaponry that God has given you to fight back or to resist, rather. So contextually, we need to talk about deceitfulness. You know, the world will cause compromise and Satan will come after you, but contextually, what we're talking about is false teachers who are trying to deceive you. We have been given an anointing, the Bible says, to combat this. This is, this is part of our weaponry. This is part of the, the kit that we're given when Jesus is now ours. An anointing. What does that mean? He just smudges us on the head? No, it means he gives us the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? Has he given us the Holy Spirit for fun? Has he given us the Holy Spirit so we can do really charismatic things so that other people can see us and marvel at us? Wow, you prophesy? Wow, you, you speak in tongues? These are good things. These are biblical things. And these are things that are accomplished through the Holy Spirit, but these are not the end all. 
Signs and wonders are meant to point back to the one giving the signs and the wonders. In the same way that you look at a contract and you see a signature and you realize that signature is not the end all, that signature represents a person who signed it. And so this word contextually, what what John is saying, it's metaphorical, it's symbolic. He's given us this anointing. He set us apart. He's given us the anointing that is the Holy Spirit so that we don't need teachers. Now, this sounds really weird because I feel like I'm teaching, right? I mean, what am I doing here if, if we're not supposed to be taught? No, what John is saying is that there is no secret wisdom to be taught to you. He's coming against the Gnostics. Ephesians 4 says that God gave us preachers and teachers as a gift. Teaching is a good thing but not the teaching of secret knowledge. The same knowledge that's available to me is available to you as well. When I prepared for this study, I used a Bible dictionary, a concordance, and a Bible. All things I found online on free websites. I studied and prayed. All things you have, I have not gone to school for years and years and years. Not against that. That's a totally cool, good thing but I do not have special knowledge that you yourself cannot get. There's not some secret pastor club where we go and they give us these, you know, these, uh, uh, what are they called? Illustrations and, and, and dad jokes to tell and, and, and we get together and, and hike up our mom jeans and, and it's not, there's no thing like that. God just takes guys who fumble around and women who fumble around and says, you know, I'm gonna make good with you. See, and no words. I'm gonna use you because I will receive more glory through you than if I had somebody who's really good at speaking or really gifted or really talented. People will look at you and say, wow, that's not that person. That's something besides that person. And then we could tell them it's Jesus. But the reason why we've been anointed is to withstand, to not be deceived, but more importantly, to fulfill something that, that's called the Great Commission. Turn to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Because I, I, I think that we're so inwardly focused on us and helping us and fixing us that we forget it's not all about us. I mean, Jesus came and died for us. That's a good thing. He, where it causes us to be born again, that's good. But then... He says in verse 16 of chapter 28, it's the last chapter of Matthew. If you've gone to Mark, you've gone too far. Now the 11 disciples, why are there 11? Because Judas killed himself. Went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. These are, are our commands. To go out, preach the gospel, make disciples, teach people what Jesus has commanded of, of us, and to wait for him. Notice here that of the 11 disciples, again, Judas is gone, so there's only 11, of which Peter and John are part of, 
Some worshiped, some doubted. Maybe you have some doubts about Jesus. Maybe you're just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know about this Jesus thing. I would encourage you this week to read the Psalms. David and other men, they wrote these poems and songs, things like Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will I have to wait for you? How, where are you, God? Are my enemies gonna overtake me? Are you just gonna let them come take my life? If you have doubts today, God's big enough for your doubts. Well, I don't know about the church. Yeah, me neither. And the church, they got a lot of improvement to make. Well, I, I don't know about this or that. Yeah, you're probably very legit in all of that. But I'm here to teach you what Jesus has said for you to do, to go, to make disciples, to baptize, and to teach and to preach all that he has commanded, knowing that he is with us always, even to the end of age. This is a big job for little people serving a big God. So we need a big God. That's the good news, man. The good news is that this is too much for us to do. It's, it's in our own power. We cannot do this, but with the go therefore that Jesus speaks, we can. You can make a disciple of somebody not because you're really great or you read the Bible or you went to school, but because Jesus has said for you to go and do that. Today, you can teach and preach. There's, the qualifications that are needed are simple. Now, I would encourage you, read your Bible. You can't always go out and say, well, I don't know what I'm talking about. That doesn't instill a lot of confidence in people sometimes. I always try to say, look, here's what the word says. It's not what I say. This isn't what I was taught. Here's what the word says. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he said. Or through him, not me. The cross comes with the promise of eternal life, but it also comes with the promise of the anointing to do these things. to fulfill the great commission. And when we're so inward focused, sometimes we forget there's even a great commission. We get caught up in our emotions and in our fears and in our goals and in our things and we forget there's a job we've been given to do. Making a disciple sounds really complicated. It's like if I said make a roux. Make a roux? I don't know what a roux is. I, I, I do know what a roux is, but maybe that's where you're at. A ruse really, si oh, water and, no, not water. It's just simple, I can't explain it. <laughs> Trust me though, secret knowledge to make a roux. No, but for someone who's a skilled chef, they could be like, yeah, boom, boom, boom. And then you'd be like, okay, I could do that. And then you go and try to do it and you set the thing on fire. Gah, it sounded so easy, but it takes some practice. I'm gonna have to do this a time or two before I have actually got it down. So how do we respond? Well, by faith. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Resist him, be firm in your faith. How do we know when deceit is deceitful? 
Well, that's where the word of God comes in. I had to have a talk with my son. I said, you know, you have to talk with your children at a certain age about inappropriate touching and things like that, you know? It sucks that we have to talk about that in this world, but you have to. You have to say, you know, there are adults who might try to take advantage of you that way. And so what I told him was, nobody will ever say anything that will make that right. If someone comes and asks you or tells you to do something that's inappropriate, no words they say will make it okay. Okay, Dad. I use that as a leaping off point. People can teach whatever they want, but if it's not found in the word of God, they can teach to the blue in the face. They'll never make it so by being louder or getting more doctorates or serving more or being sincere. None of those things make truth. Those things just make you very passionate about a lie. And so we have to come to the conclusion or come to the realization that false teachers are there. If they've deceived us, they probably came under the cloak of love. Some deceived people don't even know they're deceived. Well, they seem so sincere and they love me. Yeah, but they're teaching a bad doctrine or a false doctrine. They might be really nice people who have really bad information. And I was gonna use a, a prop today of a balloon and a thumbtack. And I was gonna blow up that balloon. I was gonna say, you know, lies are kind of like this air in this balloon and the, the bigger it gets, it never changes the truth of the pinprick. It pops it every time. If you, if you feel as though something is deceitful, number one, trust the spirit in you. You've been given that anointing to be able to detect that. It's like that spiritual red flag in you so you can say, wait, this doesn't sound right. And then question. Bad false doctrines are usually built on faulty foundations. A simple question, generally speaking, will knock it down instantly. I think all Christians should be rich. Okay, how much money did Jesus have? I think all Christians should always be healthy and should never be sick. Okay, then why did Paul tell Timothy to drink some wine when his stomach got upset? I don't think we should ever suffer. Then explain how most, if not all, of the disciples died a martyr's death. <laughs> Jesus suffered. <laughs> Simple questions. But your struggle is going to be with believing Jesus and taking at his word, taking him at his word. That he will be with you until the end of age. And I can tell you the truth all day. I can't make you do that part but I'll pray for you. Man, I'll pray for you. you. You tell me, Pastor Tony, I want to do this or that. Will you pray for me? Oh yeah, I'll pray for you, man. Man, I'll pray. I want to teach a Bible study. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to be a missionary over here. I want to start a family. I want to do all these great things. Okay, I'll pray for you, man. I want to make disciples of all nations. Okay, let's do it. I can't make you do that part though. But I'll pray for you. Respond by faith. Faith is, mm, let, me, let me not quote it. Let me say it word for word. 
Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The reality of our faith is that there are things that we are going to do based on things that we have yet to see. Our salvation, we have yet to see it fully. It, it is bought and secure, but has not been fulfilled completely, meaning we still have to pass from this life to the next. So by faith, we are saved. By faith, we will go out, fulfill the Great Commission. By faith, we'll go out and make disciples and baptize and teach what Jesus has commanded. And so you've got to come to the acceptance of that reality that Jesus has given you. I want to pray with you. Let's all stand. One of the reasons why we have a midweek Bible study and a home group at the Kessler's house is so that we can discuss these things later and at length. I said, listen to last week's Bible study. A lot of what was said then backs up what was said today. And they're kind of filling some of the gaps if you have questions. If you have questions after service, we can talk about them. I'd love to talk to you about any questions you have about Jesus or the church or the Bible. But for now, I want to pray for you. Sarah's going to play some piano. Yes. And ladies, don't leave just yet after this prayer is done. If you want to come to the altar and pray, that's fine. Um, you know, we're actually a pretty charismatic church, meaning we, we do things like lift our hands and are audible when we pray and, you know, come to altars and pray with other people, lay our hands on their shoulder, that sort of thing. Let's pray. Jesus, um, I hate that there are people out there who want to deceive us. Maybe it's for financial gain. Maybe it's just for power. Maybe it's for lust, what, greed, whatever it could be, Lord. Whatever their reasons are. Maybe they themselves are deceived and think they're teaching the right thing. But your word tells us that you have given us an anointing so that we can differentiate between truth and untruth. That you have given us teachers to be able to teach that to us, not because they're super people or because you've given them secret wisdom, Lord, but because you are with them. That you've given us the church so that we can come together and when we stumble into the thicket of false doctrine, Lord, you can help bring us back from that. Father, if there's false doctrine in us or false theology in this place, Lord, I'm just praying that you would expose it. I thank you that, that your light always exposes darkness. If we've built faulty foundations, Lord, then just tear them down. Take us back down to the foundation and rebuild that so that we are standing firm on the faith that is found in you alone. Lord, for those here today who maybe have never given their life to Christ, I pray that today would be the day they confess you with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are the son of God. That you've died to pay for the sins not only of the world but for us individually. That you have done this to give us the great privilege of being called a child of God. There's no amount to give. There's no Sundays to attend. There's no amount of love we can give that will change the amount of love you have for us. Thank you, Lord, that your love for us is dependent on you and not us. I pray today, Lord, as we walk out these doors, that our shoulders will be lighter. Not because we've just, you know, heard a good word or, you know, been encouraged or anything like that, but because truth has liberated us. 
truth of the gospel is meant to liberate us from the bondage of sin, Satan, and death. And I pray for that to take place today, Lord. Father God, we praise you. We praise you, Lord. In your name we pray, amen.